Well, again, I uh, want to remind you that we've called ourselves together this morning to prepare ourselves for a picture, a picture through symbolism of what we call a candlelight service. I want to remind you that there's nothing magical or even mystical about our service. Rather, we use the picture of the light of the candle to point us to focus our attention on the glorious and marvelous first coming, what we refer to as the first advent of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us we are to understand that Jesus is not only stated to be God's light, speaking of his ability and his purpose to expose and to impart what is true and right and good, but also that Jesus refers to himself, not simply as a light in the darkness, but the light, the actual one and only light. In John 8, 12, our Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. There is an illumination that comes to the soul that has looked upon Jesus Christ. If you know Jesus, you desire not to walk in the darkness. In fact, Jesus said that you will not walk in the darkness. The main thrust of what Jesus is speaking there is about spiritual darkness, being dead in one's trespasses and sins. That's eliminated one and only way, way Jesus makes clear in this one passage, and that is through following him, believing in who he is, that he is the incarnate son of God, thus being both simultaneously truly God and truly man. Now, if that doesn't cause you to pause for just a moment, we say it so often, but he's truly God and truly man at the same time. We believe in what he can do, what he came to do to provide for us redemption from our sin. And he brings us not just negatively that what we say negatively uh, redemption from sin, but positively he brings to us the adoption as sons and daughters of God. The Apostle John made the same point earlier in the gospel, in his gospel. We read in John 1, verses 1 through 9, these very familiar words, but notice the, the tension here. He begins with a declaration of the deity of Christ. This is your Jesus. This is your Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, that is Jesus, nothing came into being that has come into being. You're here today because of Jesus and his ability to create. But it goes on to say that Jesus is not just God, but he is light. In him, verse 4, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And so from this, I want to remind you that the candles that we will light during our second service are simply a visual representation for us of 
the light of Christ, who he is, and how his truth is to spread through his people. We will start with one candle, and it will spread through the, con uh, through the congregation. And while we are a small congregation, you might uh, be amazed at what 50 or 60 lights do to light up this room. Now imagine if we are all shining with the light of Christ in this world. We will shine brightly his truth. But for all of this to happen, for us to be able to celebrate this, Jesus, the eternal son of God, had to leave parad the paradise of heaven and enter into the poverty of our humanity. This is not the greatest place to be. It's the greatest thing we know. But we know that our citizenship is where? It's in heaven from where we eagerly await a savior. But Jesus came into this poverty. Theologically, we call this event the incarnation, that big word, the moment in time when the glorious second member of the Holy Trinity who had dwelt eternally in light and spirit took upon himself the very form of human flesh. The marvel of marvels is that he who is God became both God and man. Consider with me the wonder of the incarnation. Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom, in time rested fatherless on a woman's bosom. He who is the ancient of days became in time the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of this earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne of heaven to a tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined together. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, the deep humiliation of our creator, born of the creature, a woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he ascend, uh, descended to us. Beloved, this is what we celebrate this time of year. The coming of God to be God with us, Emmanuel. What we celebrate, the first coming of Christ, was planned by God and prophesied years and centuries beforehand. There is so much prophecy concerning the Messiah's coming dating so far back that Israel, the guardian of God's holy word initially, longed for his arrival. This morning I do not offer to you a single text for an exegetical study, but rather I wish to offer you a blessed Christmas hymn one that captures for us a multitude of ideas from scriptures themselves, calling our attention to wonder, to ponder the person of Christ and his coming. The hymn is called, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. 
Of course, we sang this hymn already, and we will do so again at the close of our candlelight service. But for now, allow me to expound upon and extract from this hymn biblical truths concerning our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To begin with, let me offer you some background on the author of this particular hymn. It was written by Charles Wesley, the brother of the preacher and evangelist John Wesley. Together, with, along with the influences of George Whitfield, although they should have been more influenced by George Whitfield, they founded what is called Methodism, which led to the rise of the Methodist Church. Both John and Charles were preachers and teachers of the Word of God. But Charles did something that John didn't, and that is he loved to write hymns. And he was prolific in writing both hymn texts and melodies uh, which extolled the God he worshipped and sought to invite others to do the same. Charles was so prolific, he wrote some 6,500 hymns, making him among one of the most prolific hymn writers of all times. Included in his repertoire are no less than 18 Christmas hymns, two of which you are quite familiar with. One, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which we'll sing later, and Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. But the question is, what prompted Charles to write the hymn that we consider this morning? He lived in England during the mid-1700s, a time when there was just profuse poverty. There were orphans everywhere, and there were bitter divisions between the upper and lower classes of people. All of this troubled the spirit of Wesley greatly. He sought to know how he, as a believer, was to understand and to relate to the problems that he saw in the world. A part of what the, the answer came as he read Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. We read there, Now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Je Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth and the seas and, and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Well, now, what does all of this mean? Haggai, of course, a prophet of the Lord, was writing to encourage the Jews that had just come out of the Babylonian exile. The years about 520 B.C., I think uh, long before any of us, 70 years after the fall of Jerusalem to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the people were engaged in the demanding task at this time of rebuilding the temple. In verse 4 of this prophecy, I'd have you note that the Lord calls his people to remember that he himself would be what? With them. He would be with them through every part of the endeavor. In verse 5, the Lord exhorted the people to consider the past. Notice he takes them to the past when he had been with them in the wilderness, having freed them from Egyptian bondage, which is a picture of bondage to sin. 
In verses 6 through 7, the Lord exhorts his people then to not simply look at the past, not to know that he's with them in the present, but to look to the future, to a time when he would return to judge the wicked world and personally establish a new millennial temple, one that would be prophesied by the prophet Ezekiel in chapters 40 through 48, if you would desire to read them. But there's a tension in these verses. Living in this in-between time, of the past where we've seen what God has done. We can read of the glories of what God has accomplished and the future where we see nothing but hope and delight as God will take care of this wicked world and will bring us into his glorious kingdom. We're stuck in the in-between, between these two poles, the discouraging times of, of this in-between time are to cause the Lord's people to be all the more looking and all the more longing for the coming of Messiah, the Christ who is Jesus. This is the tension that Charles seeks to capture in this particular hymn. Like Israel of old, believers today, are we not caught between a theological tension of what we know of the past, what we know what that the Lord has done for us in the past, coupled with the knowledge of what we know the Lord has promised to do for us in the future. But we're stuck in the in-between. These two poles, the past and the glorious future, are to keep believers steadfast, to keep us working for the Lord in the present. To be sure, the present things look dark. They can be depressing and discouraging. But we must remember that it is through such things that God has said, I am working out my purposes, my plans. And for Charles Wesley, it was this tension that gave him hope regardless of the evils and the injustices that he saw in his day. The Lord was yet with his people. The Lord was yet fulfilling his purposes. The gospel was yet being preached. People are still going to be saved. And I make this promise to you. They will be saved until the day that Jesus returns. And it will be because God's people know their God is with them. And God has promised to work through them. It is with this knowledge of what God has promised to do in the future. To bring forth his son. To establish his kingdom. He had come once to bring redemption and salvation, but would come a second time to usher in what? Everlasting peace. And this motivated Wesley to write the words of come thou long expected Jesus. This hymn is to be the heart cry and hope of every believer as we long to be with the Lord. Do we not long to see Jesus come? And to do for us what no politician, what no president, what no prime minister, what no govern, government has been able to do. And that is to finally and fully set all things at right, to make all things peaceful, all things holy, all things righteous, and all things to triumph over evil. I pray that the theology of this Christmas hymn and the biblical truth that it conveys will excite your soul. If I were to offer you a big idea synopsis of this particular hymn, I would say this, that God's people long to see Christ's twofold purpose of redemption, number one, and the kingdom realized, number two. We should love that Jesus came and provided redemption and long for his kingdom to come. While we sang three verses this morning, Charles' original work only included two. And they are up there 
in the tiniest print I could put up there for you, but let me read it for you. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child, and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us up to thy glorious throne. In these two verses... Charles encapsulates both the past prophetic promises of the Messiah, the Christ, which led people, God's people historically to look for his arrival, his redemptive work, his coming kingdom, and the believer's anticipation of his future heavenly home. There's so much theology contained in these two verses, so let us flesh out from this hymn its spiritual moorings, and I wish to do so by means of two main points. Point number one, the believer's longing is founded in God's promises. If you are truly going to long for the return of Christ, it will be because you have seen the promises that were made in the past fulfilled, and you stand steadfast upon the promises that he has made yet to come. The premise of the point is found in the very first line of the verse that we read. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. One of the key words in this line is long, the long-expected Jesus. Old Testament saints would easily agree that the coming of the Messiah was a long-awaited-for event. They would look back to the very first promise of the Lord's coming to redeem and to restore them, going all the way back to the garden itself, to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Here the Lord promised, here the Lord promised that the war between good and evil, that the war between light and darkness, between truth and error, it would come. The Lord God, in addressing the devil, the serpent of old, who had influenced Adam and Eve to rebel against him, an event that resulted in sin and death entering into this world, prophesied the end of the conflict and the hostility with the coming of one who would be called the seed of the woman. We read in Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Beloved, this is the very first accounting of the gospel. This is the good news that one, the singular, notice it's singular, he who shall bruise or crush the serpent's head is yet to come. From this point forward, all the way to the end of the Old Testament, to the, through the, the prophet Malachi, the Jews looked for and longed for the one who would fulfill this divine promise. While they missed it, God did not fail to fulfill his promise. The Lord even gave them more specifics concerning the person and the work of this one seed of the woman, this one who would be called the Messiah, that's the Hebrew terminology, or the Christ, the New Testament Greek terminology. Beloved, there's a golden thread of such promises of Christ's coming woven into the fabric of the Old Testament, and I can only offer you a few. 
To begin with, we are to note that the Christ would come from the seed of Abraham, not only from the seed of the woman, but from the seed of Abraham. In Genesis 12:3, listen to the Lord's statement to Abraham, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the point is that one would come from the line of Abraham who would be the blessing to all the families of the earth. But he gives more. He he tells us that Christ would come from the tribe of Judah. Back in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, the Lord speaking to Jacob, Israel, the father of Judah, says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Now, I had to look up this word, until Shiloh comes. What does that speak of? You hear that word Shiloh. And the word Shiloh might rightly be translated as whose it is or to whom it belongs, referencing this one from the tribe of Judah who has the right to rule. We could read it, until whose right it is to rule comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There is a day when Christ will come, and all the nonsense that we see in this world, all the evil, all the depravity, all the perversity, everyone who wants to mock God and mock God's people, it will come to an end, and it will be judged, and the people will be obedient to the one from the tribe of Judah, one from the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman. But we're given more. The Christ would come from the line of King David, 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Davidic covenant. But it's interesting in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 5, still 600 years before Christ would come, the Lord speaks through the prophet saying this, David has been dead now, by the way, for about 400 years. And this is what the prophet Jeremiah proclaims as the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. There is one yet to come, according to Jeremiah. The Lord had provided these clues for Israel to know who the Messiah is, but he gives more. He writes that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Through the prophet Micah, the Lord identifies where Messiah would be born. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read this, for, But as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be, to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His going forth and are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And where was Jesus born, by the way? In Bethlehem. By the way, if you want to know an easy way to remember this, Micah 5.2 is fulfilled in Matthew 2.5. Okay, just flip it around. You can read that. Bethlehem, not only is this place the place of Messiah's birth, but we get something more about his identity, do we not? We're told there in Micah 5.2 the eternality of this one who would be born, the deity of this one who would be born. This one, as prophesied in Isaiah 7.14, is Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. But there's still more. The Christ would be the sin-bearing sacrifice for his people. 
The Lord in Isaiah 53 gives his people the startling prophecy, which not only explains what Messiah will do, but that by what he does, he can be recognized. We read in verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Beloved, there are no less than 330 prophecies concerning the Messiah found from Genesis to Malachi. I don't know if that impresses you. 330 prophecies. The Jews not only believed in the literal coming of the Messiah, but they had also waited so long for his coming. And when you consider the probability of this, of this many prophecies being perfectly fulfilled in just one person, well, it ought to blow your mind. According to one source that I read, mathematicians have calculated the probability of just 16 predictions being fulfilled in one man as 1 in 10 to the 45th power. So I wrote that out for you. That's, there you got a 10 with 45 zeros behind it, okay? Now, if we go to 48 predictions, so we're just going to multiply that by 4. 48, remember there's 330, but let's just go to 48. The probability is 1 in 10 to, to the 157th power, 10 with 157 zeros behind it. Now, I don't know how to get my head wrapped around those kinds of numbers, and I've never been able to get my head wrapped around what's called the national debt, but I put the national debt up there just so you can see how big a number we're dealing with because the national debt's $31 trillion dollars, but that doesn't compare to the probability of one person fulfilling just 48 of the prophecies as predicted to get all of the timing right, to get all of the situations and all the circumstances correct. I also want you to know that the universe has been measured in light years and is believed to be 93 billion light years in diameter, which is 93 with nine zeros behind it. So what is the probability that one person would be able to fulfill all of these prophecies, statistically zero. By God, what is impossible with man <laughs> is possible with God. All things are possible with God. And so with all of this, we have this phrase, come thou long expected Jesus. The reason Israel was to long for the coming of Christ is because the Lord had specifically told them what to look for. He had given them all of these references and come he did, literally fulfilling each of these prophecies concerning his first coming. And for those who think that Christianity is about leaving your mind at the door and blindly accepting things, think again. The Lord gives to us, even as he did to Israel of old, more than ample evidence to believe that he has come as prophesied. And he is coming again. And so we say, come, thou long-expected Jesus. So Israel, like Israel, believers, as Charles Wesley penned, we must long for Messiah because God has said to do so. As believers today are blessed to realize that Christ has come as predicted, what are we doing today? We're stuck in the same tension between the past and the future. And we say, even so, Lord Jesus, come. 
Now let me tell you about the one who is coming. According to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Jesus will come first to remove his church from the world prior to a seven-year tribulation, as foretold by prophets like Daniel. This imminent snatching away is found in the words of Paul. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13, But we do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant, is what he says about those who are asleep, those who have died before the return of Christ, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now notice he's a reference to the past, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Do you see past looking to the future promises? Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up, snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Our past will now be in that glorious future, and that will be our present for all eternity. Therefore, Paul says what? Encourage, comfort one another with these words. Shouldn't we be comforting one another with saying Jesus is coming again? It's been 2,000 years, come thou long expected Jesus. We could, uh, why would we not desire to sing those words, come thou long expected Jesus? The words of 1 Thessalonians 4 are comforting in that they reveal to believers that we will not be here for the dreaded day of the Lord as revealed in the next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5. For the seven-year tribulation, which is designed for the chastisement of Israel and the judgment on an unbelieving world. The snatching up, the taking up of the church, Jesus suddenly appears and takes believers up to heaven with him during the, uh, uh, during the tribulation. And while all this wrath is breaking out on earth, the church will have what's called a Bema seat judgment when, when all that we've built upon the foundation of Christ will be judged not for our salvation but just the the quality of the works first Thessalonians 3 why does he do that because beloved he's preparing for him himself his bride to be present at the marriage supper of the lamb in revelation 19 so again even as Israel had looked for the literal coming of Messiah as based upon very specific prophecies today you and I as believers ought to long for and look for his glorious arrival to usher in uh, the, the, uh, the millennial kingdom and the glories of heaven. And so we say, even so, Lord Jesus, what? Come. Do you look daily for Jesus to come? Do you expect him to come? Is it all part of your vocabulary, at least in thought? Come thou long expected Jesus? Do you look up to the clouds and say, Jesus come? Do you look around at the evil and depressing state of affairs around you and, like Wesley, long for Jesus to come and set things right? Because if you do, then this hymn is for you, and you can sing it every day. But we realize from Scripture that his next coming is not simply to remove his bride, the church. When Jesus does actually touch down on terra firma, I just remind you that the rapture, Jesus never touches the earth. 
But when Jesus does touch down on terra firma on the earth, according to Zechariah 14, he will gain, the scriptures tell us, a clear and decisive victory over the forces of evil, Matthew 24. He will imprison the devil in an abyss for a thousand years, Revelation 20, and he will usher in his perfect kingdom of righteousness, the millennial kingdom, the long-awaited-for fulfillment of the Davidic kingdom. Prophecies like these give us all the reasons we need, do they not, to sing, Come Thou Long, Expected Jesus. As we see wickedness flaunt itself and flourish at times like maggots on a rotting corpse, beloved, the king is coming, and he will make things right, even as he came the first time, just as prophesied, he will come again. He promised, and I believe his promise. As we celebrate Jesus, the light of the world, we are to long for the blessed hope of his arrival, knowing that the promise is founded on specific promises found in both the Old and New Testaments. Our faith is not mindless. It's built upon the foundation of God's great and precious promises. But in addition to our longing to be found, uh, our longing to be found on the promises of God, let me note, have you note with me, secondly, that be the believer's longing is founded on God's purposes, not just his promises, but also his purposes. I'm not sure why it's not popping up. might need to, there it goes, with a little purpose. Let's make that a big purpose, okay. Now, I see some of you panicking a little bit because I've only gone through one line of this hymn. Hang on, we'll get there. The remaining part of the first verse and the whole second verse kind of just flow all together. And I'd like to have you consider three divine purposes that result from the Lord's coming. And the first is this, that Christ was born according to scripture and now sung in the song to set his people free, to release his people. The hymn goes on to say that Jesus was born to set thy people free. To set them free from what? We say, well, that's a dumb question. We all know what he sets us free from. What is it? He sets us free. He releases us from the sin that is present in us, the sin that we inherited, that was imputed or charged to us by the decree of God when Adam and Eve first rebelled against his commandments. You can read about that in Romans chapter 5. According to scripture, only Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, could fully pay the price for our sins. And he did so, providing the only means by which sinners may be freed, released from the bondage of sin forever. When you sing, born to set thy people free, your mind should be racing with all of those verses that speak of our release from sin. And so with John the Baptist, we declare what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin, takes away the sin of the world. Notice how the hymn, notice in the hymn how Wesley unfolds this truth with the words, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, now hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart that last line gets me he's only your joy if you're longing for him he's only your joy if you're looking for him he's only your joy if you are looking back at what he has accomplished for you we might ask why did jesus come at all 
Jesus came the first time as prophesied to definitively deal with sin, the sin of his people, born to set thy, his people free, right? And he did so by his perfect, powerful, and once-for-all sacrifice so that sinners would be saved at the moment they believe on him. Consider these passages. I'm just going to read some to you. One was read this morning, so just listen. John 3.16. For God, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 5, verses 22 through 24. Listen to the words of Jesus. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Come thou long expected Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of, bull, of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Why did he come? Not so that you can continue in sin. Not so that you would be fearful of sin. Not that you would wallow in the depression of sin. He came to release you. He came to set you free so that you can live life and live it abundantly, which means living for him in his glory. With passages like these, is it any wonder that Wesley then penned in this line, let us find our rest in thee. Where else do you go to have such rest? Where else is there such hope? We know it's found in Christ, in Christ alone. The moment a sinner stops running from God and bows down in humble faith at the feet of Christ, this is where the sinner finally finds rest for his soul. There is no other place. There is no other person. As we take verse 1 in, we are also reminded that Jesus is the one and only Savior. It would be a small company of shepherds who became first aware of this title, that he is the Savior, when a mighty angel from heaven speaks to them, appearing to them on the night of Jesus' birth. We read in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, But the angel said to them, what angels always say, right? Do not be afraid, for behold, take a good look. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, has been born for you a Savior, a Deliverer, 
who is Christ the Lord. He has come to set you free. He has come to release you from the prison of your sinfulness. This is the gospel. The promised Savior has come just as prophesied. And he would be found in Bethlehem. And why did he come? What was the purpose? To be your Savior. He came into the world to do what? To save sinners. To deliver them out of bondage and the penalty of their sins. Beloved, the greatest question we can ask ourselves at Christmas time is this. Have I looked to Jesus to save me from my sin? That is the greatest question. Not what did you get me for Christmas, but have I looked to Jesus to be my Savior? What, therefore, should be the logical response of a sinner who has become a saint based upon the person and work of Christ? The logical response is to long to see him. Why do I want to see him? Why do you long to see Jesus face to face? It ought to be to say, thank you. Yes, I can thank him in my prayers, and I can thank him with a life of obedience, but do you long for the day when you can go to him and see him face to face and say, thank you, Lord, for coming, and thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you for what you did for me when you did not have to do it. Thank you for wearing the cross so that I could wear a crown. But Jesus did not come only to save sinners, but also to be the great and sovereign king of kings. He will come again to be the benevolent ruler over all things. And when he does that, he will relocate us. And so let's see how the hymn develops this. We see Christ was not uh, only born, as we said, to, to release us. Christ was born to rule his people and to rule the world. Look again at the second verse of our hymn. Born thy people to deliver, born a child, and yet also what? A king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring by thine own eternal spirit rule in all our hearts alone. First, we noted the, the two purposes of Christ's born to deliver or save his people, but now also born to be king of his people. But consider carefully the next line, born to reign in us forever. You know what that's reminding us? It's speaking to us of the lordship of Christ in our lives. If, G if Christ be anything, he must be everything. We must remember that before being released from sin's power and sway in our lives, sin was actually our Lord. Sin was our master. We did exactly what sin dictated we ought to do. As Paul reminded believers in Rome, in Romans chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, he says, even so, even in light of all that God has done, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to what? Dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, notice the wording here, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lust and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God 
as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Every day is an opportunity to say, Lord, I will not serve sin because I need you to reign and rule in my life. Beloved, the moment we believe on Christ, this relationship to sin is changed. Sin was once your master. Now who is your master? Christ. As Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you know the rest of it, you will keep my commandments. Let me ask you this. Are you obedient to Christ? Does he reign in you? Faith in Christ leads to the love of Christ, and the love of Christ leads to obedience to what Christ has commanded. At the moment of faith in Jesus, he was not only Lord of lords, but he became Lord of your specific life. He now reigns in you forever. There's never a time when he's going to release that. There's never a time that he loses that. He purchased your soul with his own blood. It will not be lost. You are his. What a blessing is the lordship of Christ in one's life. He is a benevolent king who gives wisdom for living, insight concerning the deep questions of life. He gives the power of his spirit to enable us to live lives of increasing Christ likeness. This is what submitting to the Lordship of Christ looks like. And then, beloved, how are believers to respond to such grace? We thank him. We ought to thank him. We shall praise him. Shall we not be astounded that he has blessed us with the presence, his presence, in our lives and yet long for even more of him? I have not gotten enough of Christ. And I can say, come. Thou long expected Jesus. But the rule of Christ is not limited to just individual believers. Jesus is Lord of lords. He is Lord of all. We read of what is to come in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We read down a little further in verses 25 through 27. Notice what takes place here. He, that is referencing... if we. He, referencing the Antichrist, will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. The opposite of Christ is Antichrist. His kingdom isn't forever. Verse 27. Then the sovereignty, 
the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. Man, you get freaked out about what's going on in China. You're concerned about the Russian prime minister, whatever they call him, president. We wonder about our own government. According to scripture, the promise is Jesus has got it all under control. This hymn looks not only then to Christ's first coming, but it looks to his second coming. He will come again at the end of that seven-year tribulation to deal with sin and Satan and to usher in the long-awaited and prophesied Davidic kingdom. Psalm 2 and Psalm 89 remind us of that. Such passages are the reason why Wesley wrote, wrote the line, Now thy gracious kingdom bring. You've come and you've released us from sin. Now bring the kingdom. That ought to be our desire. What was, what was the, some of the first words from the disciples' mouths when Jesus was with them after the resurrection? You've paid the price for our sin, Jesus. At this time, are you now going to bring in the kingdom? And, of course, Jesus says it's not for you to know the times and the epochs and, the, and all of that, but you will receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you're not to worry about when the kingdom comes. What you're supposed to be doing is be witnesses of the kingdom that is coming. And now our Christmas hymn focuses us not on what Christ did the first time, but what he's promised to do when he comes again. And Wesley then is aware that the only logical, natural longing of believers uh, who are engulfed in a sin-tainted governmental system was for the arrival of Christ to usher in his perfect kingdom. Everything that is lacking in every system of government today, lasting peace, security, justice, holiness, righteousness, and the like, where will it be found? It will be found in Christ and his kingdom. What ought to be our response? You should already know. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And let us praise God for Jesus because he is coming. But there's one final truth that Wesley speaks of in this hymn. And that is that Christ was born to relocate us. Not only to release us, not only to rule, but also to relocate us. Part of what it means to be saved is to realize that this world is not our home. When Christ returns, we will relocate and we will relocate to heaven. There are a lot of people fleeing to Florida and to Texas from some of the uh, more northern states. But that's not where you want to end up. We will be relocated to heaven. Notice how Wesley refers to this with the final words of the hymn. By thine own sufficient merit, by your own doing, raise us up to your glorious throne. We can't do it. The reference to the glorious throne is another way of speaking of, of heaven itself. When Jesus went to the cross, he uttered, did you know a prophecy? He uttered a prophecy on the cross, and one that speaks of the believer's destination as soon as they have faith in him. In a very brief exchange with one of the thieves hung on either side of him, Jesus made this statement in Luke 23, verses 42 and 43. And he, the thief, said, was saying, Jesus... Remember me when you come in your what? Your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, 
Amen. I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. The promise of Christ was instantaneously fulfilled that very afternoon. As the thief drew his last breath, as he closed his eyes in death, he opened them in heaven. He was in paradise. He had traded in death for life. He was transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. He exchanged in that moment the horrors of hell for the glories of heaven. And I ask, have you believed upon the Christ who has come and the Christ who is coming again? Some 30 years after the cross, the apostle Paul was inspired to give believers even more insight to this particular blessing. Notice what he writes in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 2 through 8. He wrote, for indeed in this house we groan. Oh, by the way, I mean, my joints hurt more this year than any time. I guess I'm getting older. I know what this verse means now. I didn't know that 30 years ago, okay? For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared for us this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For if we walk by, for we walk by faith, not by sight, we are of good courage and say, and prefer rather, to be absent from the body and to be where? At home, present with the Lord. I hate to break this to you all, but these fleshly bodies are nothing more than deteriorating tents. The longer we live on this earth, the more we realize exactly what Paul said is true. Joints hurt, muscles do not work as they used to, the eyes grow dim, teeth wear down, parts get repaired or even replaced. Yet these bodies, yes, these bodies fall apart, but for the believer, there's more to it. One day, this old tent will be cast off and it will be clothed with a new, immortal and incorruptible and heavenly one. And yet the scripture says to be absent from the body is still to be present with the Lord as we await those new bodies. Believers long for this day and we say what? Come thou long expected Jesus. Some years ago we had a very dear couple in the church, John and Pat Chamber. John was a retired pastor and was such a blessing to me and to this congregation. Before relocating to Arkansas, he had a few years before that open heart surgery. In the course of time, it was determined they needed to open him up again for what they referred to would be nothing more than a routine procedure. I never know how they can say opening up somebody is a routine procedure, but that's what they said. I went and visited him the night before the procedure. I was with him in his room, and I remember him telling me that while the doctors were assuring him this was a routine procedure, he was not worried. He said, if the procedure goes as planned, when I first open my eyes, I will behold my lovely wife. And if for some reason it does not go as planned, I will open my eyes and I will behold my Savior. 
Well, the surgery went poorly. And I know that he woke up to see the face of his Savior. Evidently, there was so much scar tissue that had built between his, his chest cavity and, the, and the, his heart that he bled out on the table. I sat in the consulting room when the doctor came in to tell Pat the news. And, of course, we never were ready for that. But I shared with her what John had said to me. And while she was devastated by her loss, she was in awe of what John had just beheld. He knew where he was going. He knew where he was being relocated to, to heaven itself. This is what Wesley wrote about. This longing to trade this decaying tent of this flesh for a body made fit for heaven. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us up. Do what's necessary to bring us to your glorious throne. Or as Wesley put it in the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second as Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see what? The kingdom of God. We must receive the second birth if we are to see the kingdom of God. And so I ask you, are you born again? Have you received the blessings of Christ's first coming to be the one who paid the price for your sin? Have you looked to him for salvation? For without this, you cannot receive the blessings of the second coming, which is what? Being raised to his glorious throne, being made fit for heaven by the righteousness of Christ. For those who, will, for those who have yet confessed with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in their hearts that God raised him from the dead for their sins, your prayer ought to be this morning, come thou long expected Jesus. And if you have believed and you are waiting for his return, then your song ought to be, come thou long, expected Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the way that you work through your people. In the past, we think of Charles Wesley and his love for you to extol you in song. We thank you for this hymn that seeks to encapsulate so many scriptural truths. I pray, Father, that that which we have fleshed out will be an encouragement and inspiration to our souls, that it would help us to look all the more to Jesus, to even, as we mentioned before, be those who know that our citizenship is in heaven from where we eagerly await a Savior. And so we say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Rule in our hearts. Bring us into your kingdom. Allow us to be the people that you desire us to be as we await for your coming. But may it all be to your glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name.